Hey, paisanos, it's the Super Mario Brothers Super Show! We're with the Mario Brothers and plumbing's a game. We're not like the others who get all the fame. If your sink is in trouble, you can call us on the double. We're faster than the others, you'll be hooked on the brothers. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are talking about Super Mario Bros., one of my absolute favorite things in the world. I love Mario, Mario 3, Mario World, Mario 64, Mario Galaxy, so much good stuff, Sean. Thank you, Sean, for agreeing to finally do a big episode about one of my favorite game series. Let's talk about some Mario. Yeah, I've I've been really excited to do this podcast um, for a while, I've been wanting to talk about Super Mario Brothers with you, um, so much so that I, you know, recommended to you several months ago. I was like, "Hey, that Super Mario Brothers movie is coming out," which means that before that Super Mario Brothers movie comes out, we got to talk about Super Mario Brothers on the podcast, and you agreed. Yep. So I spent all last night replaying at the NES Mario, Super NES Mario. Did a little bit of modern 3D Mario. So I am ready, Sean. Did I did I look at the right stuff? No. No, that's not Super Mario Brothers. No, no. We are here to talk about Super Mario Brothers, the hit film from 1993, the first live action video game adaptation ever, Super Mario Brothers. Oh, God. So, okay, let's just end the bit. We are here. (laughs) Obviously, we have the Illumination Entertainment Super Mario Brothers movie, which I actually realize, Sean, is literally called, its its given Christian name is the Super Mario Brothers movie, which is a fun name for a movie. Wait, because there's is... already a movie called Super Mario <laughs> Brothers, so they can't call it that. Yeah. <laughs> that is coming out the first week of April, and honestly looks surprisingly good. It looks very faithful to the games. It's got, like, the aesthetic looks very faithful to how those games have looked for a while now. Um, other than Chris Pratt, all the voices sound pretty fun. So I'm actually, like, like I would say cautiously optimistic that that might be a fun film. I think it was when they have a big Mario Kart sequence on Rainbow Road that I went, oh, you know what? These people might actually know what they're doing. This looks like they played the games. Yes, um, people involved with the production of that movie have played a Super Mario Brothers video game before, and probably a couple of them. Yeah, so that's cool. But, of course, it was not the first. Back in 1993... Nintendo agreed to let some Hollywood people come into their playhouse and uh, take their toys and then throw those toys in the dumpster and make a completely unrelated movie called Super Mario Brothers. And uh, Sean, this was your idea. You, like, I think a year ago when we first got, like, real... I think it was when they announced the casting for the Illumination movie and there was the Chris Pratt gate and all of that. Uh, You said, Jonathan, you know we're going to do an episode about the 1993 movie. And I said, I don't want to. And you said, we're doing it. And uh, I ordered the DVD on Amazon for $3. That DVD, by the way, still in print. You can still buy it on Amazon for $3, brand new. It is a DVD from the 90s because it is non-anamorphic widescreen, Uh which means the black bars are coated in and I had to zoom in on my TV to get it to fill my screen. I will say, I also, because you told me that DVD was three bucks, I also bought that DVD. Uh, and I was shocked. It's like, man, it's been a long time since I had to mess with the settings on my TV in order to get this thing to fill the image. Yes. Uh, so anyway, you can find it. But this is, as you say, Sean, this is not just the first Mario movie. This is the first video game movie, in Hollywood at least. Yeah. And there's history behind it. There's a lot to say here. Why did you want to do this podcast, Sean? 
Because this is, this movie is fucking fascinating. I mean, it is, it has got to be the most insane adaptation of anything ever in the world of film. <laughs> like, it is so far away from the games. It is kind of incomprehensible how they got to this point. It shares nothing in common with the video games other than a bunch of proper nouns. That's about it. Um, and I have always been fascinated by this movie ever since I rented it as a kid, um, from Blockbuster, purely on the, the VHS art, um, and it was like, oh, Super Mario Brothers, you know, that's fun. Um, I didn't have a Nintendo, but I played that at, like, friends' houses and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, it's Mario, like, I'll watch that. And we got it, and I watched it, and, like, it's the kind of movie that it's, like, technically supposed to be a kid's movie, but it's not a kid's movie. So when you watch it as a kid, it, like is ingrained in your subconscious. And there's like a lot of therapy that happened for me last night when I watched this movie. I was like, why is this movie so weirdly horny? Like, why is this movie so... It's very fetishy in a way I did not really specifically remember. Um, but it's like it was bringing back weird memories and moments. And yeah, I think it's just like that. I had a kind of primordial experience with this film. I saw this because I, I read a bunch of stuff on the movie last night after watching it because I couldn't just go to bed right away. I, I needed to process some shit after watching this movie again for the first time in what may have well been over 20 years since I saw this movie. I may have not been like double digits in age with the last time I watched the Super Mario Brothers film. Um, and I saw, I think it was, I don't remember, it may have been the AV Club. I forget where I saw it. I saw someone describe this movie as, for many people of our generation, the first movie they ever saw that they understood was bad. And I think that is a really good way to think of the Super Mario Brothers movie is like, particularly if you're a kid and you know what Mario is and you want to see something called the Super Mario Brothers movie. This is like such a bad movie, particularly for that objective, um, that it, I think it like sort of shocks you into the state of understanding that there are things in this world that are good and there are things in this world that are not. And while I have like an appreciation for things about this movie now as an adult, and I honestly enjoyed watching it last night, um, it cannot be understood as a good movie and it cannot be understood as a good adaptation because it's not, I don't know if it can be even understood as an adaptation at all. Um, and yeah, so we have, we have to talk about this on the fucking podcast. This is one of the most insane movies I've ever fucking watched. I definitely agree with you there. Uh, I do not have quite the same history as you with this movie, Sean. I had never seen it completely back to front until last night i definitely saw this movie on like in parts on tv as a kid i distinctly remember one time hbo had it on and i dvr'd it this is people this is an old technology like you mentioned blockbuster and tapes i mentioned dvr dating ourselves here and I remember starting it up, and this movie begins with its only connection to Mario, which is it has the music from the original NES game for a little <laughs> bit. And then this weird Brooklyn accent motherfucker comes in and is like, once Earth was ruled by dinosaurs, and then an asteroid killed them all, killed them dead. And then is talking about like evolution and alternate dimensions and stuff. And I think I turned it off not long after that, because I remember being confused that in my memory so in, in this you have all of that happens and then the first scene in the movie proper is these like people bringing an egg into a church and all these nuns are around an egg and a human baby is is hatched from the egg and i think i in my memory as a kid because i was so confused by the movie back then i thought that was mario and that the whole story was that mario uh -huh. was raised by nuns and all of that 
And then I realized, um, watching it now, like on a big TV, oh, that baby is clearly a girl. It, it's a baby. You see, you know, yeah. they're not shy with the nudity <laughs> aspect. It's a baby. And I'm like, I must be wrong. And of course I am, because it's actually Daisy when you see the whole movie you learn. Um, and Mario is not mystical or anything. He's just a plumber from Brooklyn in this. There's no extra powers or anything. He was not raised by nuns. Um, so you have all of that. Uh, and that's basically what I remember of this movie. I've obviously seen, there have been all the different viral reviews of it over the years, um, online. It is a popular one for people screaming about things on YouTube to talk about. So I'd been generally familiar with it. I'd seen the various memed moments like Dennis Hopper saying monkey, you know, stuff like that. Uh, but I had never sat down and watched it. This movie is unwatchably bad. I, I did not enjoy it. I enjoy it intellectually in a exactly what you're talking about, Sean. It is absolutely fascinating. It is. It has to be one of the weirdest movies in the history of Hollywood to have yeah. come out, to have been made. Everything about it is just wrong. I think it is an ugly movie. It is a loud movie. It is an obnoxious movie. It is incredibly poorly directed and made and just like... You have the the sad thing is you have kind of nothing but great actors. I love Bob Hoskins. I love John Leguizamo. I love Dennis Hopper. Uh, I love Fiona Shaw. There's a ton mm-hmm. of great people in this movie, and you feel bad for every single one of them at one point or another in this film. Particularly Dennis Hopper, who this feels like some form of abuse to poor Dennis Hopper. What they're like because he does not know what any of the nouns coming out of his mouth mean, and you can uh-huh. tell, and it's funny. Um, but yeah, and then I started reading the history of this movie, and it is wild. Uh, this, like, I really what I want is someone needs to make a movie about the making of Super Mario yes. Bros. in the style of like the Disaster Artist, the movie about the room. We need that. Uh, that would be a better movie than this movie. No, I want I want like a twelve episode fucking you know like fifteen hour long documentary series on Netflix that goes into excruciating detail. Um, about this movie, you know, and like, you know, unfortunately, you know, uh, Bob Hoskins and Dennis Hopper are no longer with us. You can like hire people to sort of like, you know, dramatically read over their statements and interviews from the history of the production of this film and stuff, because it is watching this movie. It is like a fever dream, especially if you know the games, right? Like it's a it's a bizarre it's insane fucking film without the context of that. But when you know anything about Mario, watching this movie is like going insane because at a certain point you can't even tell what is and isn't meant to be a reference because there's because it's so far off base that there's stuff of like is the fact that they all have like guns that shoot fireballs. Is that a reference to the fire flower or is that just a coincidence? I can't tell because all the things that are explicit references like Yoshi in this movie are no closer to the game. It's just that they name drop it. So you have to understand it's meant to be a reference Um, it is just a, a, such a bizarre experience of a film. But I have to honestly admit, Jonathan, I kind of loved watching this fucking movie last night. Like, <laughs> I, I don't think I wouldn't ever call it good. I do think that a lot of the the effects on it are actually really impressive. I think the like puppetry work in some of the animatronic work, particularly for Yoshi, is fucking incredibly good. And there's some really good like production stuff around the edges of this movie that's really fascinatingly well done. Um, but the core of the movie is so bad. And the like story is so non-existent. The character arcs are are non-existent. There's no like vision for the story. There's just a vision for some of the production design, much of which doesn't even really kind of get 
executed because the story is so poor. So it's like you have you see that there's a a better idea for a movie out there in this setting that probably has nothing to do with fucking Mario at all. Um, but then you're trapped in this insane Mario fever dream from someone who like had food poisoning and is like, you know, dying in bed and marathoned Mario last night. And this is what they see in their nightmares. Like that's kind of the movie you're trapped in. You want to go see the cool <laughs> dinosaur movie with the cool puppets and animatronics and like some sort of commentary on fossil fuels in like modern American life or something that is happening way over there in the distance. And you desperately want to get there, but you can never arrive at that film. One other thing that's so funny to me about this, Sean, is that uh, from when we're recording this a couple of weeks ago, Pedro Pascal was on SNL uh, because of The Last of Us. And they did one of their little digital shorts where it was a trailer for a HBO show based on Mario Kart, but in the style of The Last of Us. It's not a great SNL skit, but it's a funny little thing. And the whole joke is that, you know, what if you did Mario like you did The Last of Us? And so everyone's all gritty. And, you know, Mario has a fucking sawed-off shotgun. And Toad is like a tweaker and all this stuff. And I watched that skit again last night after watching this movie. And what's crazy is that it's not as weird an adaptation Uh of Mario as this movie is. Like, their joke in... That trailer with Pedro Pascal is like Toad is like this weird sort of like, you know, tweaker dude. Toad is a character in this 1993 Mario who they meet in prison and is like a weird rocking tweaker dude and is even weirder than the Toad in the Mario Kart like SNL trailer. Uh That SNL trailer is not anywhere near as weird and horny and kind of grisly as this actual full-length movie that came out into American theaters in 1993 and that you can buy on DVD on Amazon for $3. Yeah, no, this this movie does put that SNL bit to shame. Like, it feels like nobody who did the SNL bit must have watched this movie or they wouldn't have been able to make that joke because it's like... You right. don't understand. There's a hundred minute version of this joke that already exists. And it's way more insane than anything you would be able to come up with um, on SNL. Like you can't come up with a joke funnier than the existence of this film. Yeah. So putting this movie into context, I do think this is very much not an excuse for the way the movie adapts Mario, but I do think it is worth remembering 1993. A nobody in Hollywood has made a video game movie yet. That just hasn't happened. So this is mm-hmm. new ground. Uh, B, Mario has not had any 3D stuff yet. And so the most recent Mario games at the time of this film's production would have been Mario World on Super NES and Mario Land 2 Six Gold Coins on Game Boy. And so in terms of like what you have to draw on aesthetically, it's not nothing. Some of those are really like beautiful graphically advanced games for the time, especially Mario World. But... It is not the same way. Like, if this came out now, it would be even weirder somehow because you have an entire, like, you've had 30 years of 3D Mario games that have really developed an aesthetic. And that's the Illumination movie. Mm -hmm. Very much looks like if you boot up Mario Kart, if you look at Mario Odyssey, if you look at the new Mario parties, that's how the Mario cast generally looks. And so it makes sense that the Illumination movie, they got over that initial hurdle, at least, it looks like Mario, right? What you would say looks like Mario in the 90s is harder, But yeah, somehow they got from these very simple games about going through fun worlds and rescuing a princess to how would you describe the story of this movie, Sean? Um, Well, so yeah, the plot of this movie basically is that uh, when the meteor struck the earth and killed all the dinosaurs, it actually split the earth into two alternate dimension earths. One where mammals evolved and developed into humans and ones where 
where dinosaurs developed into humans. Ignore the fact that that's not how evolution works. Just fucking roll with that. Um, and so in the world with the dinosaurs, they want to go take over the world where the humans are because the world of the dinosaurs have no natural resources. Um, and so they have to get the princess who escaped into our world, who has the fragment of the meteor in order to put the meteor back together so that they can fuse the two worlds and take over the human world. Um, ignoring the fact that I don't know what that means to, if you're fusing the worlds, I don't know what happens to the old, the dinosaur world then, because where does that go? Um, if you're fusing the world, it seems more like they're getting taken over by our world. I don't know. Um, and so in order to stop that, Mario and Luigi go fight some dudes and jump around and then and then it's over. Um, so yeah, that's the plot is dinosaurs want to take over our planet because there's dinosaur uh, humans. And somehow you explaining it there, Sean, you're making it sound less weird than it is. Like it's it's once you start to like give it shape in words, it starts to like it doesn't it's it's so much weirder in the actual movie. It is so much. Well, weirder. because. You know, because also those dinosaurs live in Dino Hatton, um, where yes. everyone wears a tight leather with weird with spikes on them, um, and they drive around in like Mad Max police cars, um, and they shoot people with de-evolution guns that turn them into weird little tiny-headed dinosaur men or turn them into goop. And also, there is an old king who's been turned into fungus who is like infested that entire city. That's actually played by Lance Henriksen in like five seconds at the end of this movie, which is maybe the most <laughs> shocked I was of anything in this tire film. Um, you know, and there's like, you know, and and there's ruled by Dennis Hopper, who like orders pizza by shooting like an IR laser at a TV screen, which is how their technology works for reasons that I couldn't figure out. Um, OK, do you think that's supposed to be a reference to the NES Zapper or do they not know the NES Zapper exists and it's just a weird thing? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, there is a super scope that like the de-evolution gun is just a dressed up Nintendo super scope in this movie. So, you know, presumably somebody knew that existed, but I don't know if that's meant to be a connection there. Um, yeah. So, and they, they, you know, and they're dinosaurs. And even though like they're, they're like dinosaur humans and he can like advance people's evolutions to make them smarter, but he just doesn't for reasons I also couldn't figure out. This is like nothing about the world of Dino Hatton. <laughs> makes any sense i guess um so yes when you just explain the plot is like dinosaurs want to take over the human world that makes sense when you explain it as the, the human dinosaur people from dino hatton want to take over the world then it starts to you go like what the fuck is the dino hatton what the fuck are you making and why are they all wearing fetish gear yeah uh it's weird the other half of this of course is that we do start out in our world Basically, uh -huh. and it's in Brooklyn, and Mario and Luigi are real-world plumbers. They call themselves the Mario Bros. They do refer to each other as brothers at several points, but we also get, during a key scene exposition, that Mario is Luigi's dad, because Luigi was like a street rat that Mario adopted. So they're really father and son, but they call each other brothers, uh, I don't know where all of that feels like two drafts of the script uh -huh. that were not reconciled. That very much feels like a rewrite that didn't account for other parts of the script. And also, of course, Bob Hoskins was 20 years older, at least, than John mm -hmm. Leguizamo. Because John Leguizamo is like baby-faced in this movie. Yes. He looks very young. And Bob Hoskins looks like Bob Hoskins. And I love Bob Hoskins. He is the only person, I think, who ever could be live-action Mario. Um, and he's great. <laughs> yes. But... Yeah. Yeah. And you have, so yeah, you have that whole side of the movie. You have like the insane choice to have Luigi is actually really the protagonist of the film because he's the That's one who true. has like the love interest with Princess Daisy. Princess Peach does not exist in this world as far as you can understand. It is just Daisy, which 
I don't know enough about Mario lore, but I guess Daisy was in Super Mario Brothers 2 slash Super Mario Brothers USA, right? Is that no. where she originally comes from? No, where, she comes from... She comes from Super Mario Land, the first Game uh, Boy game. that's it. And in that that's game, it. which is kind of funny because that is the first Mario game without Luigi. And that is where Mario goes to Sarasa Land and Daisy is the, the princess of that kingdom. And so that's where Daisy comes from. It was after this movie that Daisy got paired with Luigi in the games. So this is the first place where they do the thing where Luigi and Daisy are kind of the couple. And then I guess Mario and Peach are the other couple, although Peach is not in this. So... That is, I guess, maybe that is this movie's contribution to Nintendo lore? Yeah, because there you go, because it's all about Luigi and Daisy, and then Mario is just sort of, like, tags along. Um, yes. You know, and he has a girlfriend, Danielle, uh, you know, she's there, uh, because he, <laughs> he, you know, he rescues her, I guess. But really, like, they kind of put Luigi in the protagonist role. They choose to have Princess Daisy. Um so, they also have yeah. Luigi wearing red for most of the movie, <laughs> which is just a baffling choice. He is the one in a red hoodie. Mario has a little bit of red around his collar, but no other red on him until the end of the film, uh, which is also just uh, amazing. Because if there's one thing that did exist in the Mario canon up to this point, it is that Mario is red and Luigi is green, but they couldn't even do that. Yes. Um, yeah, no, I mean, the whole... As a feat of adaptation or whatever, the whole movie is a nightmare. It's just an absolute nightmare. I mean, even when they get into what is supposed to be their outfits from the games, they get those wrong. Like, the coloring is wrong on them because it's it's the opposite, right? Mario's torso is supposed to mostly be blue because he's wearing jean overalls. He's got a red shirt under it. But when they do the costumes in the movie, his torso is all red and the arms and legs are blue. And it's like, overalls are, jean overalls are a thing that actually exists. I don't understand how you can't get Mario and Luigi in the Mario and Luigi outfits because they're not, like, unrealistic. It's not an insane anime or cartoon character design where you can't understand how to bring it to live action. It's a red shirt and fuck some fucking overalls and some brown loafers dude it's like you could go make a mario outfit with like 30 bucks in a walmart uh so yeah like everything about this movie as an adaptation to mario is insane and wrong and upsetting yeah so okay where do you want to take this do you want to talk about how this works as an adaptation do you want to go to the how did this movie get made where do you want to go with this let's do some of the production history of it because it, it is like it is insane because as you say this is like, this is an interesting movie to look back on, not just because they're making a new Mario movie, but also, like, looking at this, like, Last of Us HBO show, which neither of us have watched, but obviously it's, like, getting a lot of praise, and it's something where, you know, it's such a direct adaptation where they're adapting lines and scenes from the game directly, and I assume you've probably seen some of those clips and stuff. I've seen those clips. Yeah. Um, It's like, and, you know, for The Last of Us, that's a game that that works with because it's close enough to TV show slash movie format with the cinematics that you can just do that and you can take the lines and you can adapt some of those scenes very directly. Uh, it's like very interesting to like have that. And then you look back at what is the first time Americans tried to do an adaptation of a video game in live action. And it's this where, you know, there's some sympathy there of how do you, how do you do that? How do you make a super Mario brothers movie when all you've got is basically Mario one to Mario world in the fucking game boy games. Um, but also at the same time, like there should be enough, that you can grab onto to at least have the references, right? I mean, Street. They a year after this is when like you start getting stuff like the Street Fighter movie, Mortal Kombat comes out, right? So you get like some of your '90s uh, video game movies. Some of those were in like production by the time this movie came out. So it's like those are not great adaptations of their source material. Mortal Kombat's actually okay, 
relatively speaking, for what it is. But that's much more identifiably, oh, that's supposed to be that character from this game. That's supposed to be the same setting from the game. This movie doesn't even get those basic elements right. And, um, you know, part of that is I think there is just no vision at any, no consistent vision at any point in the project for what the fuck they actually wanted a Mario Brothers movie to be. And it changed shape so many times up to like two weeks before production where they were still like rewriting the complete script and like changing exactly like what the movie was supposed to be entirely. Yeah. So this is, I think, one of the most fascinating things about its history is that this movie started with a filmmaker named Roland Jaffe, uh, who is, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but Jaffe, it's got an E with the line over it at the end. He is best known as the Academy Award nominated director of The Killing Fields and The Mission. Yes, that yeah. The Mission with the famous Ennio Morricone score starring Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons. Uh, you know, uh, hist- uh, and Liam Neeson, classic movie. Uh, that guy, that Roland Jaffe, was running a company called Light Motive, and he had the idea, we should make a Super Mario Bros. movie. I don't know why he had that idea, but he had that idea and brought this over to Nintendo. They did some... Light Motive was doing some work on this, and eventually he met with Hiroshi Yamauchi, the president of Nintendo of America at the time, uh, uh, Nintendo, not Nintendo of America, and was uh, got a deal to make this film, and then they went into the script writing process. Uh, and Jaffe stayed involved with this the entire way through. He was a producer. He was also effectively a ghost director, doing a lot of work uh, because the actual directors of this movie were extremely dysfunctional. Um, and so, yeah, the Super Mario Bros. movie was substantially made by the guy who made the mission. Maybe that's yeah. our first warning sign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because to be clear, for most of the production of this movie, and arguably the movie that came out, or not arguably, clearly for the movie that came out, like, it wasn't a kid's movie, insanely yes. enough. Like, they didn't think of it initially as a kid's movie. There was a point where there was a draft that was supposed to make it more kid-friendly, then it was less kid-friendly, then they revised that to make it more kid-friendly again. But the vision for the movie was not initially... Let's make a kids a Mario movie that's a kids movie for the kids who play Mario games, which is from the jump like such a weird thing to do. Like I don't understand why your instinct wouldn't be let's make a fun family kids movie for all the kids who play Mario. Um yes. because this is this is like the 80s and early 90s with video games. They were very much saw as a thing for children to play, not a like the kind of more all ages hobby it's more recognized as today yeah i think that's an important point and it is a absolutely crazy point is that this is still very much in the era where games are seen as a thing for children and they decided we're not going to make this movie for children that is one of the wildest things about it nintendo was also very hands-off on this and it Mm -hmm. wasn't that nintendo like sold the rights and then got like railroaded they decided to be hands-off on it and they basically thought hollywood will take care of it mario is a strong brand will be fine obviously this experience um uh i would say scarred nintendo since Uh it took a full 30 years for them to get back into this obviously pokemon has had a presence in film but even then it took until detective pikachu for them to work with hollywood again 
And then finally, now with Illumination Entertainment, they've done this where, you know, uh, obviously Nintendo has been very hands-on with that movie, with Shigeru Miyamoto is literally a producer on it, and they've been talking about it at the Nintendo Direct, and that is one where Nintendo has presumably had, like, has okayed every aspect of that movie, Mm -hmm. um, because they remember what happened when they didn't, right? So, yeah. The first screenplay for this movie was written by Barry Morrow known at the time for winning an Oscar for Rain Man, the movie where Dustin Hoffman plays the, the autistic card counter uh, brother to Tom Cruise. Uh, according to Wikipedia, his story followed brothers Mario and Luigi on an existential road trip so similar to Rain Man that production titled the script Drain Man. Yes, apparently in that version, Luigi was meant to be the sort of like autistic savant and Mario was like the kindly older brother um, going with him on this road trip. Like that is another detail I I found in looking up stuff about this movie, uh, which is I'm so sad that that script is not out there anywhere. Uh, I so (laughs) desperately want to see what the fuck that was, because like that sounds somehow like an even more insane Super Mario Brothers movie than what we actually got. Yeah, co-producer Fred Caruso said that Morrow's story was more of a serious drama piece as opposed to a fun comedy, and that is where they started with this material. That is absolutely buck-fucking-wild. I wish that script existed too, Sean, because I want someone to produce it. I want to fucking see that. I mean, God, at the very least, we should get the SNL trailer for that, right? Like, can we get Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman on SNL to do the parody where it's Rain Man, but it's Drain Man? Yeah, it's it's like, I'm so desperately just trying to even imagine. Like, what what were they thinking? Like, what was the vision for that movie? What was the audience they were going to market it to? Like, how how do you think that that is, like, an appropriate adaptation for... Fucking Super Mario Brothers. All right, so that's script number one. Then there were some screenwriters who came in, Jim, Jenna Wayne, and uh, Tom S. Parker. They wrote what they said was a more traditional adaptation. They thought they kind of came up with the idea that this would be like Wizard of Oz, where you would go into another world. That is, the, And that is kind of the main conceit of this movie, obviously, is that you have the real Brooklyn, and then you have Dino Hatton, right? And there's a portal between them, um, which, from what I can tell, actually is still the plot, roughly, of the Illumination movies, that the Mushroom Kingdom is some other world Mario finds, which I still think is a weird direction to do it. I, I never, in the games, get the feeling that Mario came from somewhere else. But oh well, that is the idea. And I do think I understand that instinct for doing a live-action Mario movie in 1993, um, they talked about how their idea was to sort of like take fairy tale cliches, satirize those, and kind of do they the, the those screenwriters later on compared it to Shrek, which obviously came out about a decade after this film. But they said that was kind of the idea at that point. Um, they had a director named Greg Beeman who had made a film called License to Drive. He did some pre-production on this, uh, but then made a movie called Mom and Dad Save the World that flopped this is a 1992 movie that made two million on a 14 million dollar budget uh and so he was fired by roland jaffe jaffe then offered harold ramus yes the man from ghostbusters who directed groundhog day uh great filmmaker uh offered him the position ramus did actually know the video games and liked them but declined the opportunity and later in his life said that was his smartest career decision 
Which, yes. <laughs> yes, I, it yes. was. It absolutely was. All right. Uh, Jaffe said, we tried some various avenues that didn't work, that came up too medieval or somehow wasn't the right thing. I felt the project was taking a wrong turn. This is a great sentence. <laughs> and that's when I began thinking of Max Headroom. <laughs> It's such a crazy sentence. Like, I I thought that our project for the Super Mario Brothers movie was taking a wrong turn. And that's when Max Headroom came to mind. Like, Can you explain to people what that is, Sean? Yeah, so, I mean, Max Headroom was like a sort of, like, alt, um, you know, cyberpunk um, kind of uh, sci-fi uh, thing that was all CG and it like played, I think it like introduced music video stuff and then eventually got turned into its own little tiny TV show. Um, and this is like, it's like, it kind of was a very experimental, um, very effects driven, again, ulti kind of cyberpunk thing. And the directors of that Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jenkel, who were also husband and wife, he, that they got offered the job to say, Hey, you made Max Headroom, this weird little experimental cyberpunky TV thing. Um, that again was mostly like associated with like music videos and stuff. Like it's very small scale. Let's give you the fucking Super Mario Brothers movie. Yes. People today probably know Max Headroom best for it. There's a joke in Back to the Future Part 2 where Marty is trying to order a Pepsi and it's a Max Headroom machine. And uh -huh. that is the, the joke there. So I think people probably remember that. So that's Max Headroom. And yes, as you say, Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jenkel, a husband-wife team, do end up directing the movie. Um... Morton said, we come from the Tim Burton school of filmmaking because our background is in animation and comic books. So we started off basing everything in reality and then tried to have fun and exaggerate it as much as possible. That sounds dumb. I don't know why you would do that for Mario, but there you go. Yeah. I mean, yes. Like immediately, I mean, it's when you, when you see, oh, the, it's just made by the people who made Max Headroom and you watch the Super Mario Brothers movie. I mean, that makes total sense. It's very consistent yes. with that style. It's very grungy, you know, and it's got, it's not technically cyberpunk, but it's sort of adjacent to that aesthetic. That's where I think a lot of like the fetishy um, kind yes. of stuff comes from in the aesthetic as well. But it's just, how did, how do you arrive at that point where you're trying to make a Mario movie is completely insane. And also again, like they had never made anything anywhere near the scale of what this movie is and their background is all like very like as they say there it's like all effects kind of stuff um it's stuff like animation and it's and it's cg effects and there's a lot of like experimental cg stuff that they were involved in in the early 90s and i think some of that comes through in the movie because the best stuff in the movie is all the effects work um right but it's like but all the things of the tr more traditional things you need your directors to do to direct a movie particularly of this scale with actors like Dennis Hopper and fucking Bob Hoskins, like these two people were not equipped to do that. No, it's also the, this article points this out. And I think this is another thing to keep in mind. Uh, in 1993, you would have had stuff like Batman, the Tim Burton movie, and you would have had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live action movie, which both go for sort of a darker aesthetic. And so this is kind of going in that same vein. Although I would argue is way more weird and out of whack uh -huh. than either of those. Uh, I mean, Batman is always, Batman is Batman, and TMNT, the fun of TMNT is that it has a little bit of an edge, right? Um, and even in that original TMNT movie, is still very silly. It's just yes. got a little edge to it. Yeah, this is definitely darker than those. I think you'd have to get to Batman Returns to get anything that's close to, like, the weird, horny thing yes. that this is. And Batman Returns, I think, eclipses it in that way. 
um, but also is very good. But like, obviously, the huge difference between this movie and those is that Batman started as a media property as serious and dark and violent. Right. Like, that's where it came from. And the same thing with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So it's like what they did with those is that they kept it family enough that like you kept some of like what people associated with the more kind of comic or like family side of those characters that had developed over time but then pulled some inspiration from the original source material that was darker and more adult oriented so for those properties that makes sense because it's part of their dna there is no like you know pre donkey kong mario game that is about you know mario murdering people or some crazy <laughs> shit you know it's there's no darker place to go from with mario to pull that idea so it doesn't it doesn't equate at all in terms of the actual thing you're trying to adapt it's like a very like superficial way of looking at it indeed uh sean ready yourself here's another banger roland jaffe quote this wasn't snow white and the seven dinosaurs the dino world was dark. We didn't want to hold back. <laughs> the dino world was dark. That should have been the fucking like tagline for this movie. Tagline, I know. Uh, I also love that um, Rocky Morton, one of the two directors, felt that this movie was like a prequel to the games. This is the true story and the Nintendo's games are like the silly thing inspired by that, which is a uh, crazy way to view your movie. But anyway... Uh, yeah, at this point, we also have another screenwriter, Parker Bennett, working on the film. Um, they've got all this, yeah, Parker Bennett and Terry Runte added, uh, they were tasked with balancing comedy with a darker tone. Quote, Ghostbusters was the model. We were aiming towards funny, but kind of weird and dark. And again, for the Super Mario Brothers movie. Yes. Yeah, so we are, and at this point, we are on our third screenwriting team. Uh... Then you have uh, those writers are fired for being too comedic. Too comedic for the Super Mario Bros. movie, Sean. Had to fire yep. them. Then we hire the British writing team of Dick Clement and Ian Lefrenet, brought on to deliver a more adult and feminist tone. Because if I associate yep. anything with Mario, it's feminism. Princess Daisy and Lena's roles were expanded, while Bertha, uh, who is the black woman Mario meets in the club in the horniest scene in the movie, yes. uh, is met. This script, so this is our fourth script, is the one that got Bob Hoskins on board. They had apparently been kind of badgering Bob Hoskins to do this for a long time. Yeah, and, and this, uh, finally, this is yeah, this yeah. is the script that they got all the cast from. So this is when the cast yes. signed their contracts. This script is what they understood was the movie they're going to be making. Same with the directors. Right. So yeah, this is the script that is effectively the one that's going to go into production. This is what they are doing official. The movie is greenlit. They're doing pre-production off of this script. But without telling anyone else involved in the project, Jaffe and one of the other producers felt it had gone a little too far from young adult family audiences and too effects heavy. Uh, so they hire screenwriters Ed Solomon and Ryan Rao, fifth team, to provide a more family-friendly script with more restrained effects requirements. This was also partially motivated by Disney had the film's distribution rights. Uh, the directors were not informed of the new script, and the actors only got the new screenplay when they arrived in Wilmington, North Carolina for production on the movie. I have never heard of anything like that. Yeah, um, and this is where you then get a lot of like 
stories you get about how upset Bob Hoskins and particularly Dennis Hopper were on the set of this movie. And there's like a famous anecdote of Dennis Hopper having a complete fucking meltdown in a scene because they were changing lines again on the day um, without telling him. Uh, and he just like, you know, was just shouting at everybody and having a complete meltdown about it. But it's one of those situations where, like, I feel sympathy for the actor that it's yes. just like you have your reputation. You have so much like on stake that you're doing with this movie. And you have been like basically hoodwinked into doing a movie you did not sign up to do. But now you're contractually obligated to be on. It's like this like incredibly fucked up and unprofessional. Oh, yeah. There's uh, Bob Hoskins and Dennis Hopper would have had to like actually hit someone for me to like condemn them for that if you're just like getting mad and they're yelling i think you were probably in the right given the situation that was going on at this point right i mean that is hoodwinked is the right word if you come to set thinking you're shooting one script and they just replace it you have been hoodwinked that's fucked up yeah it's it's incredibly fucked up and it's like it makes sense that this is the movie we got as a product of that um because, yeah, you can feel how fragmented it is. And you can also, I think, feel how much like the directors then wanted to try to take that script and still make the movie they wanted to make anyways is pretty much yes. what happened. Right. So <laughs> you don't get anything that's family friendly or kid friendly. It probably had more. Some of the jokes in it are probably from this new script or whatever. But the feel of the movie feels much more tonally in line with what they're talking about when they describe the previous script, which that script also does not exist anywhere. Um, and I, I wish it yeah. did, because I, I also want to know. Like, I so desperately want to know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an insane scenario for the production of your film. It gets crazier because that fifth writing team, Solomon and Roe, who wrote the final secret script... Roe left, but Solomon was there to do rewrites on set, which is, that alone is not crazy. What is crazy is that without invitation, the fourth screenwriting team, Bennett and Runte, went to Wilmington and got rehired and remained through production for final rewrites and dialogue and ADR and stuff. So basically, Morton and Jankel rehired their screenwriters on set to do on-the-fly rewrites. So the movie was, like, at war with itself. It basically uh -huh. had two competing scripts and directors who didn't want to film the script they were now obligated to do. And so, yeah, I, I do think the script of the finished movie is on paper more family-friendly, but it doesn't feel that way because they're trying to make this dark, weird, horny kind of fucked up, like, dark satire. Like, almost, there's, like, bits of RoboCop in here, I think. Mm -hmm. Like, just, like, it's, it's like, they keep comparing it to Ghostbusters. I don't see the Ghostbusters connection. I do maybe see, like, obviously Max Headroom. I think there's some, like, RoboCop corporate satire going on. Also with some of the, like, violence in here. It's obviously not gory in the way RoboCop is. But it feels like it's in that vein much more than anything you would expect of the Super Mario Brothers movie. Yes, absolutely. Because like, I think that's like, that's what this movie wants to be, is it wants to be some sort of corporate satire. Like there's, I don't remember where it is, somewhere in the Wikipedia thing, there's a, a quote where one of the people involved, I think it's one of the directors, talks about the idea that like in the dinosaur planet and for their society, they think of fossil fuels as something sacred or something that like you wouldn't burn oil for your cars or whatever, which is why all the cars in the movie are electric. It's like, that's a cool idea. That's like an interesting yeah. idea that you could use to tell your sci-fi movie that's very kind of undergrounded punk in its aesthetic um, and make a commentary on our like, you know, our relationship to fossil fuels and modern civilization. 
and but that's a thing that only exists in the finished product through the production design of the cars running on electricity. It's never referenced in anything direct. Um, and it's something you'd never be able to feel just through the production design. Um, and it is one of those things that's kind of a shame about the movie is I don't know if it would have ever been an amazing film, um, particularly when it is still saddled with this weird existential problem of it having to be an adaptation technically of Super Mario Brothers. But there's like interesting ideas there if it felt like the director team was able to make it right. Like clearly whatever the that old script was, was at least interesting enough that it got Bob Hoskins and Dennis Hopper to sign on to it. Like there must have been enough there that got them enough like interested in the project that they like acceded to that. Um, and it's like, it sucks that we didn't at least get to see whatever the fuck that movie would have been because it surely would have at least been better than what this end product was. Yes. Cause you know, and I think it's worth noting Bob Hoskins and, and Dennis Hopper, you know, I'm sure they appreciate the money from this, but they were at a point in their careers where it wasn't just like they needed work, right? Like mm-hmm. they, that's part of why they turned it down several times before saying yes. Um, they were doing okay. Uh, so yeah, other notes on casting here, Sean, Dustin Hoffman did express interest in being Mario, but it was Nintendo (laughs) who vetoed that and said that he wasn't right for the role. That is amazing to me. Um, we almost got the drain man with Dustin Hoffman. That would have been amazing. Danny DeVito was offered the role of Mario, and I do want to go to that timeline and see that because mm-hmm. I think there are... I said earlier, Bob Hoskins, best person for Mario. Danny DeVito would also be the best person for Mario. Danny DeVito should be in everything. Um, apparently, Danny DeVito was also offered to direct. Uh, he did He did do some directing around this time, so that makes sense. Uh, Danny DeVito, though, smart man, got out of there, went and made Batman Returns. Much better career move. Um Arnold Schwarzenegger and Michael Keaton were both approached to play Koopa. Uh, We haven't said this yet, but they don't call him Bowser. They call him Koopa. Uh, To be fair, in the Japanese versions of these games, he is called King Koopa. He is Bowser is the American thing, but they don't go with either of those. He is just Koopa, uh, not King Koopa. Although if you want something that's weird, though, about this movie is I looked up some of the stuff in Japanese on the Internet because I was just curious what the fuck does this movie do? how is this movie seen from that perspective? And it's generally kind of the same as how it's seen over here. But one thing that's weird is that yes, Bowser is Koopa in this movie, but like Toad and the Goombas are just called Toad and Goomba, which is not what they're called in Japanese normally. So like when I was, I was watching a video of someone in Japanese explaining it to a Japanese audience and he had to like explain, no, this is like this, he's called Toad, but it's meant <laughs> to be Kuribo, which is the Japanese name for the Goombas. Or for the or whatever, uh, or sorry, Kurapika, which is the uh, toad. toad. So it's it's all like mixed up, which is fucking. I don't understand how that happens or what they were going for there. Yeah. So Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, would get to do his own uh, face plant with Mr. Freeze in a couple of years after this, obviously. So he uh, avoided that one. Tom Hanks was considered for the role of Luigi, but a string of recent box office failures dropped him from consideration. That is wild. That, like, they thought they were too big for Tom Hanks. And I know Tom Hanks, 1993, it would be right after that when he would really break out crazy. 
But like, man, can you imagine the alternate timeline where Tom Hanks did this? And then I presume his career was lit on fire and never worked again. I was going to say, I think it's like we fucking like movies dodged a bullet that Tom Hanks didn't get saddled (laughs) with this project. Uh, Because, yeah, uh, like it would be like if he had. So I'm looking up his stuff. So he was in Sleepless in Seattle. In 1993, if he had been yeah. in this instead of Sleepless in Seattle, that's like some weird alternate history of Tom Hanks' career died in 1993, and the history of American filmmaking is completely different. God, that is like the most obvious like crossroads scenario to parallel universes I think I've ever seen. Does Tom Hanks do Sleepless in Seattle, giant mega classic that makes him the movie star, or does he do Super Mario Bros. and play Luigi? <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, like, luckily, I think John Leguizamo was new enough that this did not tarnish his career. He was pretty fine after this. Yeah. Um, and obviously has had a, a fun career. And I, I like John Leguizamo a lot. He's great. Uh, and, you know, Bob Hoskins. Again, neither of them, I think, were going to have their careers ruined by this. Uh, but it is. It's amazing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because John Leguizamo was, like, broadly an unknown at this point. You know, I mean, not completely unknown. But yeah. just so, super early in his career. So, yeah, it's not something that could sink it entirely um but if you were like some tom hanks at that point you know that does feel like it's you know he's not quite there yet where it's like he's totally locked in like bob hoskins is totally locked in as like a great character actor by 1993 so it's like you know it's same thing with dennis hopper um so yeah yeah i mean this would have been the big thing bob hoskins did after hook and who framed roger rabbit yeah so if you want to know the timeline like that's what he is coming off of and those are two, I mean, particularly Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but he's also one of the best parts of Hook. He plays Smee mm-hmm. in that one, and he's great. So anyway, um, all right, so you got those. I also like, so the role of Toad in this movie, who has not only nothing to do with Toad from the games, but feels like if you were to somehow chart the character of Toad and the character in this movie called Toad on some kind of graph, they would be on some kind of polar opposite ends, uh, is played by a musician named Mojo Nixon, and apparently he was cast because they wanted a real musician, but their first choice, Tom Waits, was unavailable. Sean, this is such an insane, like every sentence in this Wikipedia page is the funniest sentence you've ever read in your life. Like it's so deep. This, this is like the best Wikipedia page fucking ever. <laughs> We, we almost got a Super Mario Bros. movie where Toad was played by Tom Waits. Uh, wow. You know, I mean, Tom Waits is still alive. I think Illumination robbed us by not having uh-huh. Tom Waits voice Toad in the new movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that they that it's described here on Wikipedia as Tom Waits was unavailable, not that Tom Waits was said fuck off, which I guess <laughs> probably is what actually happened. Yes. Oh, my God. All right. So, yeah, I mean, that's it. There was uh, a lot of, like, obviously trouble on set. Morton and Jenkel did complete their basic primary, uh, like, principal photography. But then there were reshoots that they were not involved with. At one point, they got locked out of the editing room. Uh, Morton said they had to get the DGA involved to get them back into the editing room. Uh, And so there's all of that. On the side, this movie did innovate a bunch of special effects. It was Mm -hmm. the first film to use Autodesk Flame, which is an industry standard. And it was the first film that used a digital intermediate. That is, 
uh, obviously a very standard thing now, and particularly in the late 90s and 2000s when you were still shooting on film but doing digital effects. And so, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that was innovative, and you wouldn't guess that this is necessarily the movie that a lot of that stuff started with, but it actually did. Yeah, and then there's a fun anecdote on the Wikipedia page about some of the effects people from um, Jurassic Park that was in production at this point visiting the set and seeing the puppet for Yoshi and then being like, oh shit, maybe we should get these guys because like the Yoshi puppet is so good um, in this movie. Um, there's a lot of stuff not like that. as Yoshi, but as a as a dinosaur, it's cool. Yes. Has nothing a, to do with Yoshi. Yes, but. as an effect, ignoring it's the same thing with the Goombas. I think if you ignore the fact that they're supposed to be Goombas as an on-screen monster, it's a great design and it's a great execution. Um, it's just it has nothing to do with the game. Um, and shit, there's like stuff they do in here. There's some like green screen shots that look better, like in terms of compositing and more natural than shit I saw in the last couple of fucking Marvel movies I watched. So like, well, that's, that's the lowest possible bar, but yes, (laughs) but still like it's, you know, as I mean, but even for like green screen stuff in the early nineties, like across the board, when there's effects stuff in this movie, it's really well done. Um, because I think it's like the one thing the directors knew how to do and they had a good effects team. Um, yeah. It's like, you know, it's, it is the one thing about the movie I think you can truly compliment um, as long, again, as you put the game aside just for as it's its own thing. If it wasn't called Super Mario Brothers, all those effects would be like, you know, completely unimpeachable. Um, the, the Yoshi thing, I want to talk about this. They had four puppets for Yoshi, a stand-in, a wireless model, a half puppet for when it uses its tongue, and then a fully functional full body model. The fully functional puppet utilized 70 cables and nine operators and cost $500,000, which in today's dollars is basically a million dollars. Uh, that is wild, especially considering like Yoshi doesn't do much in this uh-huh. movie. Uh, there is a very just extraordinarily disturbing scene where it gets stabbed in the neck after trying to kill a woman. Um, but it is, you are right, it yeah. is an undeniably impressive effect. Like, it is on par with some of the stuff, like, I think Jurassic Park is remembered for its CGI, but there is very good um, animatronic work in Jurassic Park as well. And it's in that zone. I can see why producers from Jurassic Park would be like, well, hey, do you guys want to come work on this? Do you want to work on a real movie? <laughs> because yeah. it's good. Yeah. Yeah, like, that. honestly, the Yoshi puppet is the best part of the movie. It's the best thing in the movie. Like... Just if you want to, if you don't want to watch the whole movie, but you want to see something cool, just find the scenes where the Yoshi puppets in it and just be like, look how fucking good that thing is. Like if (laughs) it looks like how like in the Mandalorian, they use like they make, you know, CG uh, baby Yoda, but they make him look like a puppet because he could do things that the puppet couldn't do. There are shots with Yoshi in this. I'm like, I can't believe that this this obviously can't be CG in 1993, but it looks so good. I can't kind of understand how the puppet's fucking working because it's like, it looks like it would have to be CG to move that way. It's a great effect. Um, Yeah. But some others say, here's a couple of other lines uh, from the uh, Wikipedia page. I want to point out Jonathan before you get back to talking directly about the movie. Um, is there's this one, this is in the filming section where uh, John Leguizamo describes this. I fucking love this. There's so many great lines from actors who worked on this movie describing some of this shit. He said, uh, it's eight-year-olds who play the game, and that's where the movie needed to be aimed. But the directors kept trying to insert new material. They shot scenes with strippers and with other sexually explicit content, which all got edited out anyway. And it's like, 
who do, who signed on to shooting stuff with fucking strippers? I mean, it's not when you watch the movie, it's not surprising that they would have seen it when, or shot that stuff when you know what is actually in the movie. But when you think about it from the perspective of like John Leguizamo being on the set and then being somebody who had played the game, <laughs> like what the fuck are these people doing? Um, there are all these great anecdotes. I don't think any of these are on Wikipedia, but I found some of them talking about like all getting high um, and like and uh, John Leguizamo and Bob Hoskins doing shots of whiskey between oh, yeah. shit like that. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But it's like it's especially, you know, Bob Hoskins at this point had done some kids movies and he knew like he was a he knew this stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, and John Leguizamo later in his career does a bunch of great kids stuff like Ice Age and whatnot. Right. So like it's so I just like to imagine these actors thinking they're coming in to do a kids movie and there being no shame in that. They're game for it. They're good at this. And then the directors are bringing in fucking strippers for the Mario movie. And it's like, what is going on here? Uh, when I, t I tweeted about this movie a little last night, Sean, and I said this movie's weirdly horny. And someone was like, what the hell are you who had not seen it? Because like I yeah. think this movie is just unknown to a lot of people now. They're like, what the, what do you mean? Like, can you can you find me a clip? And I, I looked and I'm like, well, I can't find the clip, but if you can find it, there's this dance scene uh, where, you know, and the, the, you have Mario, like, burying his head in a woman's breasts. It's, you know, it's hard to describe until you watch it because there's, like, some explicit stuff, but it's honestly just a lot of, like, atmospherics that is just yeah. weirdly, like, it feels like Mario and Luigi are 10 seconds from being propositioned anywhere in that city, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, can we go into some of what the actors said about this movie in later years? Because it's amazing. Yes. Bob Hoskins, 2007. Bob Hoskins, sadly, no longer with us, but uh, still in 2007 around. He said, the worst thing I ever did, Super Mario Brothers. It was a fucking nightmare. The whole experience was a nightmare. It had a husband and wife team directing whose arrogance had been mistaken for talent. After so many weeks, their own agent told them to get off of the set. Fucking nightmare. Fucking idiots. <laughs> can you... The, the, the directors whose arrogance had been mistaken for talent is the sharpest fucking burn I have ever seen anybody lay out. Like, that's so brutal, dude. I mean, I have to stress, it is pretty rare you get actors genuinely shit-talking their past projects. And when they do, they will still try to do it in kind of a polite way. Like, hey, everyone tried. It didn't come together, right? This is, he is just out for blood. And I love it. Uh, it also says he and Leguizamo would get drunk every day before filming and would continue to drink between takes. In a 2011 interview, Hoskins was asked, what's the worst job you've done? What's your biggest disappointment? And if you could edit your past, what would you change? His answer to all three was Super Mario Bros. <laughs> oh my yep. god. Yeah. Uh, Hopper in 2008, this is Dennis Ho Hopper, said, It was a nightmare, very honestly, that movie. It was a husband and wife directing team who were both control freaks and wouldn't talk before they made decisions. Anyway, I was supposed to go down there for five weeks and I was there for 17. It was so over budget. Furthermore, he added, I made a picture called Super Mario Bros. And my six-year-old son at the time, he's now 18. He said, Dad, I think you're probably a pretty good actor. But why did you play that terrible guy, King Koopa, in Super Mario Bros? And I said, well, Henry, I did that so you could have shoes. And he said, Dad, I don't need shoes that badly. <laughs> that, so good. that is the best. <laughs> God. Can you imagine your child being like, Dad, your six-year-old child being like, Dad, 
you didn't you could have let us go poor it's okay <laughs> yeah it's like it's okay dad it's like look i'll you know i'll just wear my old shoes you know like we could just like duct tape the soles back on it's okay dad it's like you don't need to be in this movie <laughs> oh yep. my god oh holy shit um Reggie fils the famous Nintendo of America president, later said the film left a really bad taste in the mouth of our developers and that he had heard horror stories about its production from Nintendo employees. And Shigeru Miyamoto said, in the end, it was a very fun project that they put a lot of effort into. That is the most damning Japanese criticism, by uh -huh. the way. Just that first sentence is the most, oh my god, he's about to go for blood. The one thing that I still have some regrets about is that the movie may have tried to get a little too close to what the Mario Bros. video games were. And in that sense, it became a movie that was about a video game rather than being an entertaining movie in and of itself. I'm not 100% Miyamoto never watched this movie. That's what this quote tells me. He's <laughs> he's being polite. Yeah. He has never actually watched the movie. I'm con fucking convinced by this. I, I I tried to track down this quote and I couldn't find it in Japanese um, because I think it only was from um, Edge Magazine, which is where they source it from. Um, so I don't think it was ever from like an original Japanese source, which is a shame because I really want to know exactly what he said in Japanese. But I do not <laughs> think that he actually watched that film. That's that's my no. read on this line. I mean, I just that first line, the just knowing how like Japanese uh -huh. professionals talk, the it was fun and they put effort into it. <laughs> that so sounds like a Japanese person trying to be polite when someone asks them a question about something famously bad. Right. Like yes. that is. I'm, I'm Shigeru Miyamoto. I'm not going to shit talk people in public. Here's what I'll say. <laughs> but yes, but yeah. he did. Yeah, I think it is. I think if you hooked him up to the lie detector, uh, you know, pumped him with sodium pentothal, it would be, no, I will never watch that. Look what they did to my baby boy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And this is all of what we've been talking about. This is why Netflix, if you want a big hit, make your big, expensive, elaborate documentary about the production of this movie, because it is the funniest shit ever. It is so much better than the actual movie, is reading all the production history on this thing. Because it's it's just every single development, every single sentence, every quote you can get on the production of this movie is more insane than the last one. It's all fucking madness, all the way down. Did you know that there is an extended cut of this movie out there, Sean? Yeah, which is crazy to me because it's like the one thing this movie does not need is any more time on it. This movie fucking uh, lags on the way to the fucking finish line. Yeah, it's 104 minutes, which is already like this. I have already seen the Illumination movie is 90 minutes and I'm like, OK, that's a good sign. Yeah. You're not making a two and a half hour Mario movie. Um, but yeah, there there was a VHS work print that leaked at some point that was made earlier in the cycle and is 20 minutes longer. And in 2021, a team of like semi-professional restorationists got footage together and like restored it. Uh, apparently, additional scenes include Koopa devolving a technician into slime for the crime of sneezing, Mario's rivalry with the mafia-affiliated Scapelli Plumbing Company, and an anti-Koopa rap by Spike and Iggy at the Boom Boom Bar backed up with scantily clad lizard dancers. Ah, that must be the strippers that got cut out. Yes. And this is actually, there is also an official release of this by, uh, uh, in the Australian Blu-ray from 2021 that has the VHS work print just on their raw. So it even at, exists out there officially, which is wild to me. Yeah. One thing that is weird about this movie is that there are a couple of Blu-ray versions, but none of them have been released in our region. Um, so it's like yeah. you can get them, but there is no like American release of the Blu-ray of this film.
which and that happens sometimes with like movies that kind of bombed in the states because this movie we should also say bombed hard oh yeah it it cost upwards of 40 million somewhere in the 50 million dollar range it made 38 million dollars so it lost a lot of money uh and yeah it was because it's also like the rights to this are very weird the u.s Mm -hmm. here's here sean here is why this does not have u.s distribution it's it was a buena vista pictures film that was disney's release label at the time uh so disney technically would still be the ones releasing this disney doesn't do much physical media these days to begin with they're definitely not doing the blu-ray of the super mario brothers movie so i will say i do not think there will ever be a blu-ray of this movie in the u.s i think it'll have to be ones from other parts of the world where disney is not involved because you know i'm sorry guys disney disney's not putting this out he's gotta you could at least put it on disney plus you know make make a deal with nintendo get that shit up on disney plus um because also one, one thing that is disappointing though on on that same note is uh the so a lot of the blu-ray stuff was headed up by the vfx supervisor of the movie christopher woods um, which makes sense because it's like, hey, that dude did a lot of good fucking work on this movie. It's like credit to you if you want to get that out there in a good quality version, like awesome. Um, but he was quoted as saying that he was working on a 4K transfer of the movie, but that was in 2018 and nothing has come of that since. Uh, because I I, I want to fucking out a 4K Blu-ray of this movie. <laughs> I want to I want to see this in every all I want to see every inch of every piece of this fucking crazy thing. Um, but that I've, they have no word has come up on that and it's been five years. So I'm going to guess that probably that is not going to happen. Yeah. The British Blu-ray does have a, this was from 2014, newly made 60 minute documentary with a lot of the people we've been talking about. And I do kind of want to see that at some point, Mm -hmm. because that is not a lot of movies get 60 minute documentaries, but, uh, this movie, but I feel like 60 minutes is just scratching the surface on this thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All right. What about the movie itself? <laughs> I mean, I feel like we've said a lot just going through the history because it is such a wild thing. But, like, I, the thing is, there are some movies that have troubled histories and you wouldn't know it watching it. This is not one of those. Oh, yeah. This is a movie where every inch of that is on screen. I mean, I literally think the, like, dueling drafts comes out in things like Mario and Luigi sometimes being brothers and sometimes being father and son depending on the scene that you're in. Yes. Or, like, just the movie's general relationship with what's going on. I think Dennis Hopper is being asked to play a different character basically in every scene of the movie. And that is, like, also wild. Sometimes it's very arch and comedic. Sometimes it is more serious. Sometimes he's doing a pizza order, and it looks... It just feels like there's a gun pointed at his head off screen telling him to say the lines because he doesn't want to. Uh, It's wild. Yeah, because, I mean... You know, with like Koopa, there there are scenes that are very like overtly comedic, like the pizza scene, and then there's also the scene where he's threatening Daisy, Daisy that are very like rapey, like it's like really yes. kind of like upsetting, like it feels like you know, I don't know, it's just like you see his character in blue velvet or some shit, it's like walked in, it's like what the fuck is going on, um, and yeah, the tone and style of this movie is all over the place, and it's, as you say, it's like every other scene feels like it has a different idea of what kind of movie it's supposed to be is it supposed to be a family movie is it like a dark subversive satire movie um and it's like well you can't 
I mean, in general, you can't do that and have the tone fluctuate like that in any instance. But specifically with those two flavors, like they don't go together. Like you can't have something that's dark, subversive, underground satire and something that's fun for the whole family and for the kiddies that played Super Mario Brothers. Like that's a completely destructive mixture that both sides get like wiped out completely when that mixes. And that's like the whole experience of this film is, is you're like, oh, this is a goofy hijink scene that you could see in any random kid's film. And then now Mario is using his teeth to grab a pendant from the breasts of this woman while they're doing a very sick. And then they're like dry humping on the fucking dance floor in this fetish like leather gear club. Um, those those things can't exist side by side. It breaks your brain to watch them. It definitely feels to me like there was a significant effort in post-production to try to, like, make it more friendly to kids, not through necessarily cutting stuff out, but through the way, like, this movie, I think it's way over long, but it is also very editorially over-tightened. Like, everything mm -hmm. happens very fast. You have a lot of dialogue layered over other dialogue. It's like a very bad version of the Robert Altman thing going on, where you just have constant reams of dialogue basically being shouted over each other and like if you are someone like me who is sensitive to that kind of like if you don't like being in a room where lots of people are talking over each other uh this movie will drive you crazy because there's a lot of that so it's very loud it cuts very fast like scenes are just like nothing breathes it's it's part of why the movie drags is that it's extremely fast paced but is never getting anywhere so it's just mm -hmm. a lot of like fast tight stuff uh, and then layered over all of that, you have uh, the worst score ever written by Mr. Alan Silvestri. Obviously, uh -huh. famous composer at this point would have done Back to the Future. Um, later on, did the Avengers movies. Lots of different stuff Alan Silvestri has done. Needs no introduction. This is one of the worst scores I've ever heard for any movie. It very much feels like his job was to come in and try to, like, kitty it up a little bit by mm -hmm. having, like, this score is... Uh, if you know the term Mickey Mousing, which is the idea of having your music like really one-to-one -one match what is going on on screen, a la Mickey Mouse in Steamboat Willie or something, uh, this is trying to do that where the music is just like very cloying, over the top, really shrill, and it is like Mickey Mousing every single little movement. It is layered over scenes that absolutely should not have music. I think the sound mix is awful and like very hard to distinguish different sounds in the movie and it feels like there was an attempt in the edit to kind of make the movie loud and hyperactive and especially with that musical score those kinds of things are things you only do if you are trying to like furiously pander to children uh it is not something you do if you are trying to actually edit your movie together into something coherent yes exactly in, in yeah, that's where, like, you... The kind of what I was talking about at the beginning of this podcast of where, like, part of the experience of watching this movie feels like there's a different movie you're seeing happening way down there with all the cool protection design and that whole tone and style, but you just can't get to that movie. And some of that is this, is every time you feel like you're about to get there or you're going to get some dialogue or a scene or something that gets you more of that tone that it feels like the production design and everything else is going for, it cuts to something else. And you're constantly in some sort of, like chase or action scene is happening throughout the entire fucking movie it never slows down which is another thing that makes it feel so long is you're just like 
you just keep on waiting to figure out like what is the how are they going to stop this like at what point is it now the action beat that is leading you into the end of this movie with how many times the stone passes hands to different people and goes back to this character than that character than this character than that character and who has the princess and who does not have the princess and what are they trying to do um and it's like are we going into our normal world brooklyn then brooklyn and then we go back to the dinosaur world there's just this insane frenzy of different sequences that don't actually sort of dramatically build on each other it just feels like you're constantly pu- passing the puck down to the next dude to like in the next scene to just keep the train rolling until the movie just stops and fizzles out and that like i think that score is part of what contributes to that and the editing contributes to that is just feel like we're constantly churning the wheels of this to not sit too long on any one moment, not sit too long on any one concept, and just keep, you know, jangling the keys in front of the little kitties watching the film to keep them entertained and in their seats until the 100-minute runtime is up, um, at which point you can now mercif- mercifully escape the movie theater and go home and forget this ever happened. Yes. I also think... I, I agree in theory... <laughs> that the production design and effects are often impressive. Like, I think if you were on the set looking at them, you would be impressed. I don't think they're well shot in the movie. I think this Mm -hmm. is a aggressively ugly film. This movie was shot, in theory, by Dean Semler, who is a great cinematographer. He shot Mad Max 2. He shot Dances with Wolves. He shot the Mel Gibson film Apocalypto. This dude is a stone-cold, you know, legend in the industry. You look at all of his credits, right? Um, I think he was seemingly ignored a lot on set. There's this line where it says Morton and Jenkel would even provide instructions down to what aperture the camera had to be at, to which Dean Semler responded by questioning his employment on the production. So I think there was some... Because if you don't know how film sets work... I remember this. There's this story from a documentary about Star Wars where George Lucas, you know, that was he had directed um, American Graffiti, but this is his first like, you know, big kind of blockbuster, and he had a very like classically trained DP on that set, and George Lucas was used to independent filmmaking and would kind of be micromanaging, and finally the DP took him aside and said, George, listen, this is how this works. You tell me how you want it to look, and I make it look good. That's the division of labor, and that was like George Lucas's lesson on the job. You do not go to the cinematographer and tell them what fucking aperture to use. Mm-hmm. You tell them the general look and they figure it out because they're the head of a fucking department on the movie, right? And so I have no doubt Dean Semler could shoot this stuff well. There are Mad Max cars in this movie, and this is the guy who shot Mad Max too. But those cars look cheap. I think all the sets look cheap. I think everything looks bad and overlit. Like, this movie is... It's so weird because it wants to go for that dark Batman-y kind of feel, but it does not have like Tim Burton's dynamic, interesting lighting where everything Mm -hmm. looks good. Honestly, what it reminds me of is Batman Forever or Batman and Robin, where you have like maybe some of that production design is good. I don't know because Joel Schumacher wants to overlight everything until it looks like ugly and unbearable and i think this movie has a similar problem where i think the lighting is just way off i think the cinematography and like down to even framing choices is ugly and weird i think the general color design is off it is just an unpleasant movie to look at and i think when you add in the fucking terrible edit it's just it's it's a very hard movie for me to like sit still and watch yeah like i i don't disagree with any of that but i almost feel like that is kind of the it's like it's sort of the aesthetic of the movies it's kind of supposed to feel like if it's the max headroom people it should feel grungy and cheap and fucked up 
and I, for me, that almost kind of contributes to the aesthetic is that it's cheap in like it feels like it's a soundstage in the way that the Joel Schumacher movies do. But it feels more like that is part of the aesthetic of the movie. Um, that's not to say that it's like great or that good. Um, but it, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the cheap, I, like, yeah, rough way this movie fucking looks like. Yeah, it, it, it looks like two people who don't really know how to make movies shot this thing. And there's something about it I kind of liked. I just, I think if, I think the kind of aesthetic you're describing, there are plenty of great movies that have done that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, honestly, like some of the early Mad Maxes are like that. Mm -hmm. And like, I think, I think if you had someone like Dean Semler and some of the effects artists and everyone really empowered to do the work, I think that could work. I think this looks like, I can see the goal exactly as, it's like you were saying, like you can kind of see the movie off of the distance this is trying to be. Mm -hmm. I think I can even see that aesthetic because I don't think it's wrong. Well, okay, it is wrong for a movie called Super Mario Brothers to yes. do this. But in the like weird corporate satire thing they're doing, I mean, Ghostbusters is a good example of a movie that looks and feels kind of grungy and dirty because it's supposed to be real New York and they're working out of this abandoned fire station and all of that and it's kind of like Ghostbusters is an ugly movie I think it's intentionally ugly and I think that's part of the fun of the aesthetic you can do that well I just think this is like this is ugly in the wrong way to me where like it's hard to appreciate some of the work going on when I think it is just like poorly lit and framed and everything I guess is how I would say it yeah, I, I, yeah. Again, I don't know if I, I don't really disagree with that at all. Uh, but like, but there is something, there's something about it I find appealing. There's something about the like incredibly fucked up way this movie yeah. looks. Um, uh, both I think fucked up intentionally and I think fucked up unintentionally. Like, there's a very amateurish quality to the movie that is weirdly appealing to me. Um, like, I, I like, I legitimately enjoy the first scene when you go to Dino Hatton and it feels like you're getting this like this is an insane version of like such a like dialed up to 12 version of new york in movies and to an extent where it feels like oh some of this is them intentionally trying to make it look cheap and grungy and weird and dirty and some of it is that like they just kind of don't know what to do with it um and with the lighting because i think the lighting is the big thing where it does not feel like this movie does not feel like it was professionally lit obviously professionals worked <laughs> on it but it does not feel like they were allowed to do their job is what it feels like yeah, no, I, I I can get that. And it is, it's just, it's a weird thing because I mean, bringing it back to the, this is technically a Super Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> yeah. If there is, again, just let's just limit it to 1993. What has come out? You've had Mario on NES, you've had Mario 3, you've had Mario World. What do I associate with Mario? I associate bright, bold, primary colors, yes. right? It's red and green, and like Mario is filled with color. They are pleasant games to look at. The music is happy and fun. Like they are inviting. The creatures, like, and this is true all the way to today's Mario games. There are no scary monsters in Mario. The monsters look fun also. Like Bowser doesn't actually look like an evil fascist or something. He's a fun big lizard guy. And the Goombas are cute little things. And you've got actual turtles that you're jumping on. Like Mario is pleasant and fun and storybook. And this movie is dark and it uses like browns and beiges and the colors are washed out. The Goombas look like something out of my darkest nightmares. Yoshi is too real to be in this. Um, all of it. It's like, it's it's the aesthetic polar opposite of what the games are. Yes. And so would you imagine the experience of 
again, and you know, don't have to imagine it, having lived through the experience of being a kid knowing <laughs> Super Mario Brothers and then seeing the box art, which all of you, if all you see is a box art, it's like, oh, cool. It's the, it's the Mario Brothers. Like, I'll watch the Mario Brothers movie. Um, and then you get this thing. It, it is like, it's fucking traumatizing. Like, it's so, it's, it's so <laughs> weird. You don't, you know, as a kid, you're not equipped to be able to process what the fuck is happening based on your expectations coming into this and the reality of what you're actually being exposed to. Um, you know, it's, it's a break with your experience with the world up to that point. And, you know, it's, it's a betrayal of kind of everything you thought you were going to get. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's a very, it's, it's, a, it's an informative movie, you know, and it, it's a formative movie for lots of people of our generation, I think, who had this experience, either people a bit older than us who saw it at the theater or like our age who maybe, you know, had a, a blockbuster incident and then this occurred. Um, because, yeah, it is it's wrong. Like everything about this movie from the perspective of being Super Mario Brothers is completely wrong. Yeah. And like, I can't even think of a quite a good analog for it because there are other movies that famously like have scarred children. You know, there's like Return to Oz is famously unexpectedly dark, but Return, like the Wizard of Oz is also, I think people forget 1939 Wizard of Oz has some weird dark shit in mm -hmm. it that gave kids nightmares too. It's got the flying monkeys. It's got, you know, Dorothy holed up in the castle with, you know, Aunt Em on the, in the crystal ball that is a scary scene. So like, it wasn't crazy. And, and the books have some darkness in them. And so Return to Oz is not entirely out there. Uh, the never ending story has the fucking horse die. And that is sad, but the never ending story is also kind of a dark fantasy sort of thing, right? This is Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. This is a movie that like implicitly, and again, it's not like, again, it's not even clear what, what like pure authentic would be from like 1993 with what you have. Obviously those are games without stories. You're going to have to invent a lot. You're doing it in live action for some godforsaken reason. Uh, all of that are challenges, but still, if you put the name Super Mario Brothers on the movie, it comes with certain expectations and then you see the film and it's horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it would be like if you went to go see, oh, they're making a Barney the Dinosaur movie, but Barney, instead of being a cute, adorable purple dinosaur, is like a horrifyingly realistic, actual lizard monster that is going around and eating children. It's like, what the fuck happened? Like, where's I love you, you love me, we're a happy family? It's like, no, he's fucking killing everybody. Um, like, that's basically what this is. You're taking a thing that is like bold colors and big and happy and for kids and then you're making, again, there is a like weird rave fetish leather gear club in this movie. Like, what the <laughs> fuck is happening? Like, how is that in your Mario movie? That's insane. And I think what's weird is that if they had made the, the darker, even less Mario version of this that had more strippers and more rave stuff in it, I think it would feel less wrong because it would be less connected. Like it would be uh -huh. something like even more its own thing. And because the, the final edit we have has everything I described earlier of clearly trying to pander to children with the crazy editing and music and everything. So it's like the movie still has a foot in our target audiences, the kids who played the games, but the last people on earth who will possibly enjoy this are the people who played the games, uh -huh. right? And so it is trying to do both at once, and that's what is so weird. It, it is absolutely bizarre. Yeah. Here's one part <laughs> of the movie that I I kind of adore. I have like I have a headcanon for this movie, Jonathan, which is okay. I think this version of Mario 
um, is not really, he was not re- always a plumber. I think he used to be a hitman for the mob. Um, <laughs> and he went on, his last job was he killed Luigi's parents. And he realized he had gone too far. And he adopts Luigi and raises him as his family. Um, and that Scapelli also either was the boss <laughs> of that mob or is involved in the mafia in some way. Because the first 15 minutes of this movie, when they're in Brooklyn, I swear to God, if fucking James Gandolfini as Tony Soprano just walked into a scene, you would 100% believe it. It is so just like like an Italian mob movie with, you know, this mysterious older dude who, like, Mario has lived a fucking life in this movie, you know? There's a... there's there's something to this guy. Um, and there's this very ominous moment where you realize that he and Luigi aren't actually related and nothing ever expands on what that means, why that is the case. Where did Luigi come from? Why did Mario choose to adopt him? Where is Mario's, the rest of Mario's family? Like it, all, none of that is explained. Um, and when you have like the Anthony Scapelli stuff, which isn't specifically like nobody says that they're members of the mafia but they're clearly supposed to be members of the mafia doing their construction hits and stuff like that like there's a whole mob side of this movie that exists on the edges that they never explain that like i want the scene where like you know tony soprano calls them up and says like you gotta come down to jersey man got one last job for you you know it's like you owe us a favor um, and we're calling it in. Like, that's the movie that I want to see, that you never go to the fucking Dinosaur World or none of that shit happens. I just want to stay stay in Brooklyn and learn more about this Mario Mario fucker. I'm imagining two things now. I'm imagining Mario in the, like, Mario Bros. plumbing van they have in this movie, driving on the Jersey Turnpike to woke up this morning <laughs> from The Sopranos, yes. <laughs> doing the intro to The Sopranos. And I am imagining the scene from Godfather 2, where Vito, Robert De Niro, climbs across the rooftops to go kill the guy. Uh, but it's Mario, and he's going to kill Luigi's parents. And he's in the red and blue suit and everything. Uh-huh. And it ends with him doing the hit and then adopting little Luigi. Uh, wow. Is this like a long-standing theory of yours with the movie? Or did this no. you came up with this last night? No, I mean, the last time I saw the movie, I was like eight or something. I had not seen okay. The Sopranos, because The Sopranos uh, was like, I guess it had just started at that point. Um, so, like, this is, this is me watching it now. I'm like, it very much... It just feels like that. All the like the accents and everything that everyone has, particularly it's the dinner scene, like the dinner scene, you know, not in terms of like qualitatively, but in terms of the kind of thing it's going for. It feels like a scene straight out of fucking The Sopranos, particularly the Danielle character. Um, It's very funny to me how much it, it is sort of kind of in that world. And again, and it's the Scapelli stuff. It is this weird sort of relationship that Mario seems to have had with Scapelli that is never expanded upon. And the fact that Scapelli is obviously a member of the mafia, it very much invites this idea that Mario is a member of the mob. And Mario's, you know, he's a badass dude. You know, he doesn't give a fuck. At the end of this movie, he just faces down Koopa. Like, if you're a plumber, you don't do that. Like, you, you, yeah. he's never killed a man before. Um, But he fucking melts Bowser and he doesn't give a fuck in this film. I think that's right. I think Bob Hoskins brings a degree of like world weary. Yes. I've lived in this body for 50 years to this movie that you would not expect. of the. I don't think Chris Pratt is going to bring that energy to the new Mario movie. Um, 
And it is, I think it's it's right. Like Daniela, his like girlfriend, specifically feels like his mob girlfriend. Like that yes. feels like the girl he would have been, he would have met her down at the at fucking Steve Van Zandt's bar on the Sopranos, and they would have started dating. And they're not married because, you know, he's in the mob. He was, what are you doing, marrying, right? Yeah. What the fuck? So they're just they get together from time to time, and then he's got Luigi over here. And yeah, this all makes sense to me. Like I think when Mario is good with those tools, he has not always used those tools for plumbing. He knows other ways to use a yeah exactly you know and and it's you know his father right had gotten out of that life and started this whole plumbing business or whatever and you know mario didn't want to you know he he wanted to go back to the mob you know it's like he thought hey that's what a man is supposed to do you know honor and all that kind of stuff and then he later realizes his mistake and goes back to his father's business and restarts up the mario plumbing business um that's that's my whole i think it all it all connects it all makes sense Oh wow! Okay, what else you got? I don't know. That the Yoshi puppet you looks st- good. <laughs> okay. Well, no, no, no. You said you there were a couple things that lived in your head from oh. this movie, so I wondered if you had a list. Oh, because for um, me, it's my favorite scene in this movie. Because I actually think this scene is genuinely funny. Uh, is the Mario Mario Luigi Mario scene uh-huh. where they are being booked in prison and they do this little sort of like who's on third routine. And John Leguizamo is just very funny here. So is Bob Hoskins. But Leguizamo has to, like, land the punchline that their names are Mario Mario and Luigi Mario, which has basically just been accepted Nintendo canon ever since, I guess. Um, That they are the Mario Brothers because their last name is Mario. And Mario happens to have the name Mario. And so they are Mario Mario and Luigi Mario. And I presume Waluigi Mario and Wario Mario. And uh, I love that. I love that detail. I love John Leguizamo trying to explain this. And I do want them to adapt this into the new movie because I want Charlie Day in his, like, it's always sunny, crazy voice doing the Luigi Mario bit because it would be very funny to me. Yes. And, you know, it makes sense. It makes sense that, like, they're the Super <laughs> Mario Brothers, you know? It's like, I have a brother, and I don't call us the the Sean Brothers. Like, that's an insane <laughs> way to refer to it, right? Um, it's very egotistical uh, for the one brother to just sort of claim, hey, this is what we're going to be called. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, that's yeah. what we should do when we have Thomas on the podcast. That's how we should introduce you guys. These are the Jonathan brothers, Jonathan and Thomas. How do you like the part at the end of this movie where inexplicably there is a local news report and it seems like they're doing it just as like one, like the kind of like local interest story, like old woman finds dog or something like that. But it's local plumber found alternate dimension and saved us from a dino overlord these and this is a real line in the movie those mario brothers really are the super mario brothers and that is like the title drop at the end i fucking love that it's so dumb yeah it feels like they didn't know how to end the movie Um, and there's a couple of places where it really feels like they didn't know how to end the movie and so they just sort of wrote that and they're like ah fuck it you know uh it it's it works well enough might as well it's just, it's so nonchalant as this local reporter is describing the upending of everything we know yes. about the universe around us. It's I, like, instead, yeah. Yeah, a man was turned into a fucking chimpanzee, you know? <laughs> it's like, what happened yes. was complete madness. Oh my god. All right. I mean, let's talk about the characters here. What do you think of uh, Mr. Bob Hoskins and Mr. John Leguizamo as Mario and Luigi? It's really it's great casting, you know. Bob Hoskins, even in uh, such a dire film, he's still fucking so much fun to watch. You know, he's yes. such a good actor. He brings so much charisma. Like, like I said, Mario feels so much like he has lived this whole big life in this movie. 
<laughs> not because of the script, but just because of what Bob Hoskins like brings to it. And it like it feels like, you know, he's a professional. So it's it's, you know, he's going to do his best, even if it's absolute garbage material he's given. And it truly is garbage material. Um, but he, you know, he's got such good energy. He like leans into the comedy bits completely. And I think he and John Leguizamo have like a legitimately good energy and chemistry in the film. That's like in a universe where they decided to actually adapt the games in some way that was somewhat sane. This would be the two people I'd want you to cast as Mario and Luigi. Yeah, I mean, you would still have to get over the weird age gap for the Mario Brothers, which is an odd thing. Yeah. But it is fun. Like, especially if you did this in animation, which is how you Mm -hmm. should fucking do it, they would be great voice actors for this, definitely. And, yeah, I also like John Leguizamo. I've always... uh, He's just a fun actor. And I think, you know, he is... He has the more thankless task here because he really is the protagonist of the film. Bob Hoskins really does get to do his, like, character actor shtick on the side. Luigi is the one who is effectively our protagonist, like with the love interest and everything. But Leguizamo is good at that, and he's a charming actor, and I, you know, he's good with the jokes in here. I think John Leguizamo, particularly of everyone in this movie, feels like he most came to play a mm. children's movie. Yes. Like I think he knew and he wanted this to be a kids' movie, and it seems like he came onto set excited to make a movie for the kids and was uh brutally disabused of that notion. But, you know, he did his best, goddammit. Yeah, actually, absolutely. Like, you can really feel that performance. You could put it into a kid's movie. And as as the main character who, like, you know, starts, you know, he's kind of, like, naive and has this kind of small worldview and he ends up as, like, a hero. This is the closest you get to a character arc in this movie. Um, and it's like, you know, he he, he really tries for it. Um, yeah. Obviously, in terms of other performances, you know, Dennis Hopper, I enjoy him in this movie, but I also feel really bad for him. Uh, it's like he's the one that I feel like because you know you see he has to have like the weird makeup and have his hair put up like this and he's a character that like is feels like is written differently in every single scene and I still enjoy him I'll I enjoy this hopper in anything but I feel worse for him in this movie than I do Bob Hoskins <laughs> like it just feels like oh he's yeah. given some really thankless fucking shit to play it's like that's the thing there are some moments that I think if you clip them out of context are funny But I think when you watch it in the context of the movie, I genuinely find it uncomfortable because he is mostly isolated on his own. And sometimes Mm -hmm. he's with a couple of other like minions or something. But there's only a couple scenes where he really interacts with the rest of the cast. And otherwise, it does kind of feel like he is in a box being like made to deliver very hasty material that he does not understand. Not because he's stupid or anything, but because he's been thrown this crazy assignment I think there's a very clear sense he doesn't really get the tone. I don't think he's being directed. Um, you know, the, even the best actor in the world needs a director, not because actors are stupid, but because somebody has to be the person deciding what is the tone of this movie. Yeah. What is your performance pitched at? And I think I think you can just tell Hopper is adrift. And like, you know, he is an actor who can go very big and he goes very big here. But this is not Blue Velvet, where David Lynch and him had a good working relationship where Lynch had a sense of what the movie was and who that character was. Um, This is very far from that. And you do just... There's points of it... The word that keeps popping into my mind, and it does not apply here because he was not old enough for this, it feels a little like elder abuse. There feels like some Mm -hmm. kind of like... They hoodwinked this guy into this part and had him talk about putting Tyrannosaur meat on his pizza. And he is out to sea. And it just feels awkward and sad. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's a weird, 
Again, it's like there's that really awkward bad scene between him and Princess Daisy. The whole time you're just like, what are they trying to do? Like, what are they doing with this movie and this character? Why are they making Dennis yeah. Hopper do? Leave him alone. Um, I, I had no idea that yeah, Fiona Shaw was in this movie. Yeah. She is like Koopa's like female underling. Uh, obviously, Fiona Shaw, I think a lot of people maybe know best. She's um, one of the Dursleys in the Harry Potter movies, but she's in she's a British mm-hmm. acting legend. She's in lots and lots of stuff. She's always great. Uh, she she also seems like she was like game to play this silly, but that is also a very thankless role. And it is just funny to see like an actor kind of of that pedigree and caliber in the weird Dinotopia stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I enjoy her performance a lot in this. Um, that's another character, though, that's, like, where the movie is weirdly horny, is, like, every dress she has is, like... Yes. Like, uncomfortably tight on her and, like, incredibly low-cut, and it's just fucking weird. Um, and then... And then everything with that character near the end of the movie is pretty horrifying, where there's that shot where she falls onto, like, a nest of wires and gets electrocuted, which at first I thought was like, oh, are they going to kill her? And then she doesn't get killed. She gets, like, Bride of Frankenstein hair. Um, And then later she's in the media or whatever and puts the piece in and she gets fucking vaporized and her skeleton gets jammed into the wall of the cave. Which leads to what I think is my favorite joke in the whole movie, which is John Leguizamo says, man, she sure left an impression, huh? And then it does a reaction (laughs) shot to the skeleton and the skeleton goes slack jawed like it's reacting to the joke. And it is the darkest fucking thing (laughs) in a kid's movie. It's like this woman just died and then you're making a joke at her death and the, the skeleton itself is so you know just floored by how inappropriate this is that it just goes completely slack jawed at it uh really horrifying and there's like a whole scene near the end of the movie where they're trying to have like a dialogue scene in the cave when it's like daisy has to be left behind she's like i have to stay here and it's like the dear full goodbyes and in the background of that entire scene you just see her skeleton fucking like embedded into the wall of the cave (laughs) like maybe not the best setting to use right now for your tearful goodbye between your hero and his love interest you know it's like really weird what they do with the character at the end of this movie yeah, uh, it's so weird. Sean, what do you make of the heavy Catholic imagery at the beginning of this film in the orphanage where you have, like, descriptions of this baby under, like, big stained glass vistas that, like, I just, I'm sorry, you don't shoot a Catholic church and nuns like that if you don't want someone to read something into it. Yeah, and these nuns that apparently don't think too much about the fact that, like, a human baby was born out of a fucking egg, a giant egg, um, which is very weird to me. Uh, yeah, well, you know, you don't have much sex education in the Catholic Church, Sean. Yeah, I mean, uh, did they think that Daisy is, like, a fucking martyr? Like, is she, like, the second coming of Christ or something? Like, what what was their perspective on what they thought this this child was going to be? Um because actually, one of to me, a big open question about the plot of this movie is, why is Daisy special? Like, why is she the only person who can withstand the energy of the meteor and combine the worlds together? Like, what is it about her character? There's, she's just the daughter of the previous king, but she's not magical. There's nothing else to, like, she's just another person. Um, and I don't understand, it feels like there's something left out of the film, like there's a line that got cut, or concept, or a subplot, that would have explained why she's meant to be the fucking chosen one, or some shit. There's just so many dropped threads here, because she is also, 
introduced to us as this NYU student uh-huh. digging for dinosaur bones. There's this whole like, because the Scapellis, the Scapelli crime family is like trying to get in on the dig site. And that's how Luigi meets Daisy. And there's all this stuff. And that's just, I mean, it's just completely dropped. Like just yeah. never even vaguely brought up again. Um and then, of course, Daisy comes in at the end of the movie looking like fucking uh, Ripley from Aliens, inviting them on another adventure. I guess it's a sequel hook. Uh, there was no sequel. There was no Super <laughs> Mario Bros. 2. Uh, thank God. But yeah, uh, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's weird. It, like, Daisy is just such a complete non-character in this movie. Like, it feels like she's supposed to be effectively the main character in terms of the plot. It feels like it's that classic setup where you have the dopey male lead who sort of like gets roped into this adventure, but really the actual plot of the movie resolves around the female love interest is that kind of classic setup, but they don't actually ever do anything with her. Right. And that's part of that chosen one thing of where she's supposed to be important. Like, you know, Koopa needs her and the stone, but it's never explained why she's important or why she has the powers that she has or anything. Um, And it's one of the most, the, one of the biggest kind of plot holes are just like weird, emptiness is at the heart of this movie where you just kind of feel like you can never get a grasp on what the story is actually trying to do. Yeah, it's I <laughs> saying it's weird is not heavy enough. I don't know yes. what else to say about it at this point. This movie makes uh, no sense whatsoever. And, you know, really set the tone for video game adaptations for about 30 years, because this is the 30th anniversary of the Super Mario Bros. movie. I think there is something kind of poetic about 2023 clearly being the year where Hollywood finally took this seriously mm-hmm. between The Last of Us and, again, that new Mario movie, I fully expect that's going to be pretty good. Like, it it seems like they worked hard on it. it. It seems like there's a lot of, like, love for the property. It's got that, other than Chris Pratt, that great voice cast. I And I think it's going to make a lot of money. And I think between that and The Last of Us, it feels like you finally have a generation of of, like, people ready to take video games seriously and not be ashamed of what they're making and take Mario and try to make something else with it. And it, but in that intervening 30 years, like this movie is an outlier, but not I've God, when you look at like the history uh-huh. of like your resident evil movies and just your various terrible Hollywood video game adaptations, some of your tomb Raiders and stuff like that, like this isn't that much of an outlier is what's crazy. Like this is kind of how Hollywood has treated video game movies for a long time. Yeah. But, but this is definitely the Nadir. Like, sure. Yes. If this is so far removed from the source material, it is so poorly executed um, because even, you know, cause even some of the other movies, I mean, I don't think any Hollywood ever made like a good video game adaptation, but they at least made some that were like successful, you know, like the Tomb Raider movies were box office successes, you know, the, the, the first, first one, the, well, yeah, the, the other two one. bombed. Yes, yeah. but the Resident Evil, the first Resident Evil movie was a box office success for the scale of movie that it was. Um, but this thing was both a critical fucking uh, nightmare and also just an unbelievable bomb. You know, it's just like yes. just setting money on fire is basically what this movie was. Um, and, you know, it's good, I guess, that like some video game adaptations like Street Fighter, the movie, were already in pre-production uh, because, you know, there's a version of history where like video game adaptations just died forever because of how bad this movie is and how hard it bombed at the box office because it truly is fucking dire. Though it did, did lead me to, I thought... You know, I was thinking about Street Fighter the movie just because of how close they were um, historically, because it's just one year later. 
And I do wish that we had gotten Super Mario Brothers, the movie, the game, the way there's the Street Fighter, the movie, the game, that is an adaptation of the game <laughs> or the movie back into video games. And I want the like fucked up, really dark PC only adventure game that is this movie's plot and like characters and stuff. I want like a weird pixelated Bob Hoskin like profile like portrait picture in the corner with a bunch of command <laughs> options like take and give and grab and talk and stuff to me that's what super mario brothers the movie the game would be oh my god i wow i said okay some fan get get on that go ahead and make that and that'll be crazy yeah this is a hell of a thing yeah i mean in the 30 years since this movie has come out it has been described by some as a cult classic now jonathan that like you know it's it has a colorful enough history around it. It has enough of a fan base for it to be getting like, you know, all these different Blu-ray releases in different regions and stuff like that. How do you feel about that? I think that's overdoing it. I Sometimes I do get annoyed at the internet's desire to take shit from the bottom of the toilet and try to make it special in some way. Uh, this is a bad movie. I don't need it to have a critical rehabilitation. I do think it's an interesting movie. It's a movie worth talking about. Again, like I think at this juncture in particular with this, it just there's something about the poetry of 30 years later, Hollywood finally took it seriously again and like did this seemingly made, like again, that Illumination movie, haven't seen it yet, but A, it's made for children, B, it's colorful, and C, all the characters look like the characters. Like, there's something about finally getting to that point and it taking 30 years that makes this a very interesting movie to study. Uh, but no, I, I, cult classic is a term that is overused to begin with, I think, um, because sometimes it means terrible movie that some people like to talk about, and sometimes it means just a really good movie that didn't make a lot of money on release. This is neither of those. Uh, this is just bad. But, you know, if people want to... It is interesting to talk about. We've been doing it for 100 minutes here. Yep. Um... Yeah, and, and we haven't even talked about my favorite performance. I mean, you sort of addressed it broadly, but the best performance in the movie by far is Lance Henriksen at the end, who is playing <laughs> the king. Uh, I think he has one line where he says, uh, yes, here's his one line in the movie is, I'm back. I love those plumbers. You hired Lance Henriksen, a man who has one of the best voices, the just like the deepest fucking graveliest fucking voices in actors in Hollywood. And you give him one line in your movie and it is this. I'm back. I love those plumbers. <laughs> 